Listeners should be advised that some of the content in this episode of Inside the Crime could be distressing to some. In the last episode of Inside the Crime, we learned how the bravery of one young farmer saved what proved to be a vital piece of evidence from the fire. By entering the burning farmhouse, this local hero risked his own life to recover the bodies of Sharon Whelan and her daughters, Zara and Nadia. And in doing so, he and all those neighbours who helped him handed the detectives the clue they needed to find the killer. This was the last room in the house that wasn't damaged and there was always a danger that it could have collapsed. I mean, it could have been that all the evidence would have been destroyed if that room would have been destroyed. Yeah, it doesn't bear thinking about um, what the outcome would have been had the bodies been destroyed beyond recognition. And it was a huge source of comfort, I'm sure, to the Whelan family that that did happen. I spoke to their father and I said to him, well, you can tell him, I said, we'll never be able to take them enough. If I hadn't the bodies, I wouldn't be here talking to you now because I couldn't take that. Mm. I think the man above, whatever he's handed, said enough is enough. In the days after that tragic Christmas morning, we heard Brian Hennessy, a local stand-in postman, was already raising eyebrows in the village of Winegap. He did start making inquiries after a few days around, uh, I think he was asking... Uh, when the he was man who brought me down. Yeah. Uh, he said, you brought Christy down. He said, yeah, I brought him down, yeah. Tell me, he said, did the ceiling come in on top of them? Because it was a two-storied house. Mm. And the top story had come down. And he said, did the ceiling come in on top of them? Hennessy was asking a lot of questions, but a curious curiosity wasn't the only reason his name was scribbled onto a whiteboard in Kilkenny Garda Station. In the last episode, we learned how forensic scientists were able to match his DNA with semen found during Sharon's post-mortem. He had a lot of explaining to do, and even more eyebrows were raised when he was eventually taken in for questioning. When he walked in from work, they let him go in. So when they went in, they took him back out then to clear out. All the rest of the family was taken out of the house and he was the last to come out. So they arrested him outside the door. In this episode of Inside the Crime, we'll take you inside the interrogation room. As you may remember, Jim Ling and Brian Murphy were among the detectives who interviewed Brian Hennessy following his dramatic arrest. Both of them just knew he did it and with the forensic evidence linking him to the crime scene, they were off to a good start. But despite the strength of their hand, neither of them were taking anything for granted. Hennessy had a story, and for all intents and purposes, he wasn't behaving like someone who had blood on his hands. In fact, following his arrest, both detectives found him to be composed, calm, and collected. Here's Brian Murphy. Well, he, he was quite calm. Um, now he, was, uh, he had been back at work uh, for a few days after the murder and had been behaving in a normal manner around the time Christmas Day, having, you know, having uh, food with the family and uh, uh, attending the funeral and you know, behaving normally around the area. So when, he was, uh, when we met him first uh, that morning when he was arrested, he was quite calm. Jim was also taken aback by Hennessy's demeanour in their early exchanges. He was the one who arrested him and remembers how cool he was when they knocked on his door. It didn't seem to faze him. In fact, Jim couldn't believe how relaxed he seemed about the whole thing. 
he was so relaxed, um, calm. He didn't seem uh, surprised, you know, he didn't seem shocked that we were there. Once Brian Hennessy's um, DNA was found at the scene and in the circumstances in which it was found, obviously all our focus would have been on him and his movements. And what I can say is that prior to his arrest, every person we'd interviewed from his family, his friends, his work colleagues, um, it was remarkable that none of them at any stage noticed anything untoward about him. Um, he was working as normal and um, he had gone out several nights drinking and um, as I say, nobody noticed anything at all about his behaviour. They considered him the same as, as, as normal. As soon as Brian Hennessy became their main suspect, the detectives had to nail down his movements in the lead-up to the murders. This was crucial. They needed to know his comings and goings that day so they could work out a timeline to cross-reference with the times they believed Sharon and the girls were murdered. They spoke with friends of his, reached out to locals, asked business owners if they could check their cameras to establish where he was on Christmas Eve, who he was with, and what he got up to. Here's Brian Murphy and Jim Ling again. On Christmas Eve, he would have been working and would have went with uh, friends uh, celebrating that evening and um, finally finished up in Guinness Pub in, in Wine Gap. Yeah, he, he, he did start drinking early in the afternoon in a, a local pub in, in town and then moved to another pub in County Tipperary and then ended up in, um, in the local pub there in Guinness in Wine Gap. He would have been drinking quite heavily. He was with friends and um, he was in yeah, good form, but he had quite a lot of drink taken. In the course of taking a witness statement from one of his friends, is it correct to say that he had said to Garthi that at one point during the day, Brian had said that he was going to have sex that night? Yeah, that was said. How significant it was, I don't know, but um, it was said to one of the Garthi during, during a, a statement. So Garthi were able to establish where Brian Hennessy went on Christmas Eve and what was on his mind while he drank the day away. The detectives also had the damning DNA evidence up their sleeve, but they didn't reveal that card straight away. Hennessy had been swabbed, so he must have known that's why he was there, and he must have wondered why they didn't mention it right off the bat. He'd had weeks to come up with a story, and it was time to tell it as Brian now remembers. He maintained first that he hadn't been up there, but after a short while then he, he, you know, he admitted having been there, but was giving the version that you know, he had an, an invite to go up there and that he had uh, consensual sex with Sharon on the night in the room where, where the kids were sleeping. Now, he had given the sample, so he knew there was a possibility that he was going to be linked. There was a probability, probability that he was going to be linked with the murder, with Charn. So he had time to think about what he was going to say, and hence he had the suggestion that he had a, an invite down there. And there was no question that there was any truth in that, because I, I think Sharon uh, knew him to see, and that's about it, really. And he had no inviter. Uh, there, was, there, was no re, there was no way that Sharon would want him or anybody else coming down that morning. So after first denying it, Hennessy eventually admitted going to Sharon's house that night. But he claimed she asked him to call over. That was a lie. Sure, she wouldn't even let Christian with the Christmas presents for fear he'd wake the girls up. He had to pass them in through a window. 
Hennessy claimed he had sex with Sharon in the girl's bedroom, and he said it was consensual. Nobody believed that either. Drawing the truth out of him was proving to be tougher than the detectives thought it would be. He was adamant he didn't do it, and after he passed up every opportunity to come clean, they decided to present him with another piece of evidence. Here is Jim Ling again. Eventually, when the evidence of all of his neighbours who attended at the scene and uh, their view that Sharon had been quite stiff while the two children were quite the opposite and when that was being put to him, um, his demeanour changed, he became quite agitated and upset and he did admit that he had actually strangled Sharon and uh, the reason he gave for that at that time was the fact that uh, when he was leaving, she told him that she threatened that she would tell others that um, he'd had sex with her and that, um, in particular, she would tell his um, family and his girlfriend. So that's the excuse he gave at that stage. And he said he left the house and the children were still OK. So after five gruelling interviews, Brian Hennessy finally admitted killing Sharon. But the detectives had more work to do. The fire. They had no concrete proof that he started it, and he wasn't prepared to fill that hole in their investigation. True to form, he had only led them a few paces towards the truth. It was up to them to figure out how to get him all the way there. And they did. He had given an account that he was back. He was back in his house quite early. He initially said he had left the house having come back from the pub to retrieve a jacket that he'd left in the local pub, Guinans. He didn't go there. He went down the road about a mile to Sharon's house. Now, he said he was back in his house pretty soon thereafter and uh, maybe put himself back in the house at three o'clock. But his mother made a statement and when she was interviewed and was quite adamant that he hadn't um, come back to the house until seven o'clock, he'd had no keys. She'd had the house locked up and she specifically remembered looking at the clock when she let him in and it was sometime between six and seven o'clock in the morning. So that really did put him in the area missing um, for those crucial hours. So when all of that was put to him, I'd say, you know, he, he saw the futility of holding out. And it was later then he admitted that he actually remained at the house for quite some time, thought over, you know, what could he do, what might he do? and he decided that he would bring Sharon into, back into the bedroom. Um, he'd had sex with her, he said, in the kitchen, and then in the bedroom, and he brought her back into the... killed her in the kitchen, brought her back into the bedroom, and um, decided that um, the best thing to do would be to set fires in the house, and um, that's what he did, and he left uh, the house then. Did his demeanour change at that stage? Because you did say that when you first started asking him questions. And I imagine in those early exchanges, you're giving him an opportunity to tell the truth and to come clean what he did. And he didn't take that opportunity, obviously. But you spoke about him having this calm demeanor. Did that change as you were presenting him with rebuttals to the story that he was giving you? Not initially, no. He was incredibly calm and detached, really, I, I, I felt, um, with regards to you know, the situation that he was in. And he seemed very, very calm. About the third, I think it was the third or fourth interview, um, when we were putting all the statements, particularly of the, his neighbours, those who retrieved the bodies 
and then of course the statement of his mother contradicting his account of his movements when all of that was put to him obviously to me it appeared it slowly dawned on him that there was no way out from here so he did then become quite agitated quite a little bit upset but not not unnecessarily so you know he never really betrayed huge emotion to me um, certainly not what you might expect of somebody who had uh, done something in the nature that he had done, you know. After strangling Sharon, Hennessy spent hours in the house contemplating his next move. He knew her two girls were asleep in their beds. And in the end, after all that time mulling things over in his head, he decided to set the house on fire. Why, though? Well... He claims he doesn't know why, but I think it's fair to say that he thought he'd get away with murder if he did. And after spending days sitting across from him in an interrogation room, Brian Murphy also believes he was trying to cover his tracks when he set that fire. He knew where she lived and he knew she was a vulnerable person. And he had walked from the pub uh, to where she was. And it took a bit of time to go there. So he went up for one particular reason, uh, to take advantage of the, f- the fact that she was on her own in the house. And there's no doubt in her mind that the intention was to go in there and, and uh, assault her, which he did, and he, he, he raped her. And um, then to cover up his, this deed, this awful deed that he committed, he decided then that he would set the house on fire knowing that two children were in there and were likely to die as a result of this fire as well. Now, I would say he took a bit of time in the house because he didn't get back to his own house until early in the morning. And uh, there was two seats of fire in the house. Uh, So he was making doubly sure that the fire would cause the maximum damage. And Sharon's body uh, was inside with the children who were asleep. And uh, hence he left the, the house early in the morning. Nobody knows for sure how long Hennessy spent in the farmhouse with Sharon's body before he decided to burn the place down. But here, Jim gives us his thoughts. Well, the time span would have been probably somewhere around two o'clock to six o'clock. The feeling was that Sharon may have been killed somewhere between two and four. So that would have given him a time span, maybe of an hour or two to make up his mind. He did say he paced around for quite some time thinking about his situation, what he was going to do. Now, he had consumed quite a lot of alcohol. He had been drinking all the day before. That probably, in, in, in a way, had some effect on his thinking as well. But he did set uh, at least two, maybe three, four fires. The main seat of fire would have been, was found to have been on top of a, a washing machine in the kitchen. He did say he set fire to clothing there. There was a... a, a um, uh, one or two other uh, seats of fire in the bedroom. So, yeah, he probably had a time frame of maybe two hours, give or take, from the time he killed Sharon to the time he set the fires and left the house. Aside from the horror of what he did, one of the hardest things for me to get my head around is how Brian Hennessy went about his business after killing Sharon and the girls. 
as if nothing happened. He went home to his family, he ate Christmas dinner, spent time with his girlfriend, drank with friends. How could you do all that? He even attended the funerals on New Year's Day. Imagine that. I mean, here were the Whelans, in the depth of despair, wondering what evil had visited their daughter's door that Christmas night. And little did they know that the root of all their pain was in their midst that day, right in the thick of it, a wolf in sheep's clothing. I asked Jim if he thought Hennessy was simply living the lie in the weeks before his arrest, maybe trying not to do anything out of the ordinary. We had never come across Brian Hennessy before. Um, he'd never come to our attention. He'd never come to the attention of the local Gardaí. So I can't comment on, on him other than to say that um, as a human being, you would find it very hard to believe that somebody could uh, be involved in something like that and continue to live and operate as normal unless he managed somehow to block it out. But it would need a a psychiatrist or somebody of that, of that nature to um, try and um, get to the bottom of that. Did he seem remorseful towards the end of the interview process when he had gone some way to admit what he did, albeit potentially still leaving a few a few gaps to be filled in? Were, did he show any sign of remorse? Did he say that he was sorry for what he had done? Yeah, and, and look, to be fair, absolutely he did, yeah. He did and would have repeated it over and over and over again. Yeah, And that's being fair, you know. I mean, I don't want to say for one moment that he never expressed remorse. Um, he did. He did. Uh, once he had um, owned up to everything, yeah, he did um, try to explain it away and um, show remorse. And um, what more... Can I say about it other than I, I, it's not for me to comment on whether that remorse was genuine or not. He said what he said, that he was sorry. He said it over and over again. It's six o'clock. Good evening. I'm Adam Ledworth. A man in his 20s has appeared before a special sitting of Kilkenny District Court charged in connection with the murder of a woman and the deaths of her two children. Brian Hennessy, who has an address at Wine Gap in County Kilkenny, is accused of the murder of 30-year-old Sharon Whelan last month. He's also charged with two counts of criminal damage. Mr Hennessy has been remanded in custody to appear before Kilkenny District Court again on Tuesday. The bodies of Sharon Whelan and her two daughters, seven-year-old Zara and two-year-old Nadia, were found on Christmas morning after a fire burned down their rented farmhouse in the village of Wine Gap in County Kilkenny. At least 60,000... So after days of interviews, Jim and the rest of the investigation team felt they had enough to charge Brian Hennessy. Knowing that someone was being brought to court was of some comfort to the Whelans. Now, all they could do was wait. They prayed for justice. I'm back at John's house. We've been in touch quite a bit over the phone, but it's great to see him in person again. Well, John, how's it going? Oh, funny. I wanted to ask him how he felt seeing Hennessy at that first court appearance in Kilkenny. That would have been the first time he laid eyes on him since his arrest. Myself and Dad and uh, my two brothers, uh, David and Paul, would have attended. Um, I remember just before we went in 
to the the courthouse our kind of liaison officer saying saying to us guys he's going to be in here you're going to see him um i know you're not going to do anything but i have to ask you you know if don't don't just don't do anything don't react you know i can can i trust you not to to do anything and we said of course and we just want to we just want to go in we just want to get this over with we came in and we sat down and the, the judge was sitting in in front of us and uh Brian Hennessy's family was sitting just in front of us and then the, the side door opened and two guards came out and then uh, Brian Hennessy came out with two more guards, one either side of him, down the ramp and came around the corner of the ramp and, and sat down uh, there. He was about 20, 25 feet away from me and and the family. And uh, the... The, the judge was going through his whatever he said. I don't remember anything really about that. I just kept, I just kept looking at him, you know, and I could I could see him crying. Uh, and I I knew like he wasn't crying for Sharon. He wasn't crying for the girls. He was crying for himself, you know, that he had been he had been caught and this is what he was facing into. So he was remanded, I think, to Clover Hill at the time for for trial. But how did it make you and you know your dad? feel when you first laid eyes on Brian Hennessy this would have been the first time since you knew that he was a suspect that you'd seen him it's yeah it's, it's very hard to explain what what the, what the feelings are it's 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 kind of everything goes through your head at the same time you know you're you're looking at this person and or I remember thinking like you know how how does he have the capability of of doing this you know what is what is wrong there? And at the time, like we we had a we kind of had a fair idea of like like we we knew what what had happened, and we knew how his his day afterwards was kind of panning out. We had heard things like he just carried on as normal, and you know had his Christmas dinner and all that. And I'm just I'm just looking at this person, and I'm I'm just um, I'm angry. I'm uh, really upset. I I don't want to do anything, but I'm I'm just sitting there and I'm just thinking like, what what did they do to deserve that from you? You know, um, it was quite numbing, really. Um, but yeah, the the feelings were the feelings were bad. Um, it takes you to quite a dark place. Um, but luckily. The supports we had there in the court were good. Like we were, we we looked after each other there the day. Like you know, so. But look, I just I just saw this pathetic thing sitting in the chair that was after destroying our family. You know, um, you know I had, I had no impulse to go and do anything. I just wanted to know why, why, you know, why he made that choice. There were lots of journalists in court that day too. The public was horrified by what happened to Sharon and the girls, so people were following the case very closely. Unsurprisingly, the trial, some 11 months later, drew a lot of media attention too. It was set down for November 17, 2009, in the Four Courts. Next 
Nowadays, murder trials are heard in the criminal courts of justice, but when Brian Hennessy was due to stand trial, the central criminal court sat proudly under the iconic dome of the four courts. And that's where I'm headed today, to meet an old friend of mine, Sarah O'Connor. Sarah works as a crime and courts correspondent for Virgin Media News, and she remembers this case well. This was a hugely anticipated trial and it was due to go ahead and it was just less than 11 months after the murders happened. So that Monday morning, uh, there would be a list of trials to go ahead in the Central Criminal Court. We would all have gone to the Round Hall. There would have been a huge media presence in anticipation of this trial. This was a woman who was murdered alongside her two little girls. So everyone would have, as I say, converged on the Round Hall, uh, waiting for uh, the trial to be called. John made the trip to Dublin that day with his parents, Christy and Nancy, and the rest of his siblings. They knew it was going to be tough, but they wanted to be there for Sharon and the girls. The local guards had put a bus on for them, and some of them were on it too. In the end, it was a wasted journey. A jury was sworn in, but the trial was adjourned until the next day. The Whelans were back, bright and early, and John says he'll never forget coming face to face with Brian Hennessy again. So when we come up the next day, we're in the waiting area. We're told, yeah, the case is definitely going to be heard today. Whatever look I gave across the, the, the room, I could see I could see Brian Hennessy and his family less than 30 feet away from us. And he was there, you know, his suit on, uh, chatting away to his family, a um, couple of guards around him. Uh, and... and and I, I think I, I noticed them first, so I, I kind of got mum and dad over. They sat down, I kind of stood in front of them, uh, hoping that they wouldn't see him, but they did see him. They couldn't help but see him, like he was he was right there. You, you, by the sounds of it, were trying your very best to protect your mum and dad from that dreadful experience of being in the same room as Brian Hennessy and seeing him there in the same room uh, as you. I mean, how, how did they feel? They clearly would have eventually seen him despite your best efforts. Um, how did they feel? I mean, what, what was going through your head that day when you saw him again? It was quite different to the first time I saw him in, in Kilkenny. Um, I was quite angry. I, I had a, a long time to kind of process what happened. Uh, the details of what happened in the days after had, co- had come to light. Um, we, we knew more about how Sharon died and the suffering that he put her through. He was there just like carrying on as, as if nothing, he looked, he looked really relaxed. We were very stressed, we were very anxious. Um, but yeah, I was, I was angry that, I was angry at the way our family was treated in the courts, even in the waiting room. I was angry that my parents had to be put through that actually physically see him there in front of us. That needn't have happened. The trial was due to begin at 11 o'clock that Tuesday morning, but 11 o'clock came and went. The Whelans watched the clock. Time moved very slowly in the round hall of the forecourts. What was taking so long? We would have been used to that as court reporters, that, you know, trials were delayed for different 
valid legal reasons so we would be used to that for family members it's really traumatic they you know they they probably wanted to, to start the ball the ball rolling and they wanted it to start and they would probably anticipated a prosecution opening uh, their evidence in the case but we had heard then that possibly there were some negotiations in relation to a plea that there possibly would be a plea and then Brian Hennessy would have been arraigned in the courtroom a packed courtroom lots of journalists the Whelans were there Brian Hennessy's family were there and uh, of course it would have been full of of lawyers and, and guards as well involved in the case so when we went into the courtroom we weren't sure, sure there was no specific place for the family to sit we were just put a, uh, we just found these empty benches and we went in and we sat down uh, Brian Hennessy's family was two rows ahead of us and as the the trial started uh, all the the room started to fill up and all the press came in and they kind of, they stood in front of us and we, and we couldn't see what was what was going on. We could barely hear what was going on. Um, but I think uh, someone spoke to dad or, or spoke to our support worker in the court and, and said that there's been a change. And just like that, at the 11th hour, Brian Hennessy pleaded guilty. The Whelans were stunned. Why now, they wondered. The wooden bench beneath them creaked as they leaned forward to look to each other for answers. It soon became clear. He pleaded guilty to the three charges of murder against him. And then in that case for the Whelans, they would have been relieved, obviously, that they were spared a lengthy trial. But he, we, we then heard that the, the rape charge against Brian Hennessy was not going to be proceeded with. And that would have really upset the Whelan family because uh, Brian Hennessy, I think, had, had stated or claimed to the Gardaí that it was consensual, whereas, in fact, the Gardaí and, and nobody believed him that it was consensual. So they would have been disappointed with that aspect of it. The post-mortem revealed evidence that Sharon had been the victim of a violent sexual assault. The investigation team believed he killed her for fear she'd tell his girlfriend what he had done. But despite the evidence, Hennessy insisted he didn't rape her. And now, the charge was taken off the table and wouldn't go to a jury. The Whelans would be spared the ordeal of a trial and Hennessy still faced a lengthy sentence. But they still felt cheated by that. They just couldn't believe the rape charge had vanished. And then, just like that, what was supposed to be the opening day of a gruelling trial, suddenly and unexpectedly, turned into a sentence hearing. And nothing really could prepare the Whelans for what they were going to hear. You know, they would have they would have known details of what happened, but probably not uh, the level of detail that they heard during the sentencing hearing. And that would have been really upsetting. All that evidence of when, uh, you know, in relation to the post-mortem examinations, how Sharon died, how the two little girls died, carbon monoxide poisoning, the level of detail in relation to what Hennessy did to Sharon Whelan in the living room, and then strangled her and, 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 and transferred her body then into the, the girls' bedrooms. And then when they heard details in relation to the sexual injuries, they, they were sobbing. They were really upset in court. And, and you can just imagine what they were going through. It, it just doesn't bear thinking about the trauma that they had to go through. Even though they had been spared a trial, it was still incredibly traumatic to hear that level of detail in that condensed period of time. It is the hardest thing that I, we've ever had to had to sit through and endure. Um, it was uh, 
yeah, I, I think I personally kind of just switched off. I didn't, I didn't let it in. Um, I just wanted to get to the sentence and I just wanted to get to the place where, uh, you know, I want to know how long he was going to be behind bars. Um, we had a fair idea, but I suppose what the, what the evidence was doing was just uh, that little bit more detail. Uh, it didn't go into a whole lot of detail. Uh, the hardest part I found was the, the coroner's court a few months later. Uh, that's when uh, the real detail, detail of what happened to Sharon came out. And, um, uh, and her injuries were uh, listed quite graphically. You know, uh, that's, I personally found that the hardest with the distressing detail of what happened to Sharon, Zara and Nadia now laid bare before the court, all that was left to do before Brian Hennessy was sentenced was for the Whelans to tell the judge how they've been affected by what he did. A hush descended on the courtroom as John rose to his feet and made the short walk to the witness box to address the court. Luckily he had penned something in his living room just a few days before the trial was due to start, just in case. His head was bowed, he was looking at his feet all the time and uh, just one crocodile tear after another. Uh, you know, there was, the, there was no sadness for us, there was no sadness for the girls, it was sadness for himself. And um, uh, everything was about him. Uh, even on the night he killed the girls, it was about him. Self-preservation, those other three lives meant nothing to him. It was all about himself. So, yeah, I just felt nothing for him. Disdain, really, I suppose. How did you find even taking those steps after your name was called and you were beckoned to the, to the yeah. stand? How did you find that, delivering that victim impact statement, knowing that the man who was responsible for all this hurt was sitting just a few yards away from you? It was nerve-wracking. It was um, scary. But I also saw it as an opportunity to try and portray and get across, not just to the people in the court or not just the judge or the jury or whoever was there, the press. Uh, they were not even on my radar. I wanted, to, I wanted him to listen to me. I wanted him to, to take in what I was saying because the victim impact statement wasn't uh, addressed to the court, it was addressed to him. And uh, when I was delivering it, there was no one else in the room, only me and him, in my mind. You never had the opportunity to sit across from a table and tell him how you felt. Mm. This was the first opportunity that you had. Yeah. Was, was that something that was going through your mind when you sat down to prepare the victim impact statement? What, what was your process? Yeah, what was your thinking uh, when you did that? Exactly as you said, that this is the approach I took was, uh, I'm, I, I need to, to get across to you the damage that you've done. And by doing that, everyone else will hear the damage that you've done. But this is, this is, this is how I'm, I'm going to address you. This is, this is my way of speaking to you. This is my way of being Sharon and Nadia and Zara's voice that you have taken. Uh, and this is what I want you to hear. And I want you to take in, and I want, to, I want you to take to prison with you. And remember every day what I'm going to say to you right now. And with that, John pulled the typed two-page statement from his pocket, cleared his throat, and in his mind, cleared the room too. To John, 
It was just him and Brian Hennessy now. He looked him in the eye and spoke to him directly. This was for Sharon and the girls. We, the family of Sharon, Zara and Nadia Whelan, want you to know the effects your inhuman and ruthless acts have had and will continue to have on all our family. It's impossible to put into words the pain, grief and the destruction you have brought to this family when you murdered our three girls. It is obvious that human life means nothing to you. A defenceless mother and two innocent girls, their lives meant nothing to you. It is beyond belief that anyone with any humanity or conscience could contemplate, never mind even carry out such an act of pure evil. Sharon lived a short distance away from her mother and father and her two beautiful girls, Zara and Nadia, and she was a wonderful mother to them. And like all single mothers, she had her struggles, but those girls wanted for nothing. Our own mother and father were like parents to those two girls. Dad used to collect Zara from school every morning, and Sharon and Nadia would spend days with Mam. Those three girls were the centre of our parents' world, and you, Brian Hennessy, took that away. Zara used to take so much pride in helping her granddad put out the flags and matches in the neighbouring hurling field and loved playing her camogie. She was to make her communion this year. But like all the joyous occasions that were to be in those girls' futures, you, Brian Hennessy, have taken those away. Little Nadia was a beautiful child full of life and mischief. And even though she had just been diagnosed with autism, she was so loving and affectionate to everyone. Who knows what the future held for her? But you, Brian Hennessy, you took that away. On Christmas morning, you took the lives of three innocent girls, an act that has forever changed and destroyed all of our lives. Christmas for us is no more, it doesn't exist. It is a time of loss and profound grief for us instead of the joyful, peaceful time of year it once was. Christmas meant so much to Sharon and the two girls. On Christmas Eve, Sharon was so excited to have everything ready for her girls. She rang them three times, twice to say the girls were asleep, and a third to say the dad could come down with the presents. Little did we know that would be the last time Mam would hear her voice, or that those girls would never wake up from their sleep. The murder of our girls has left such a hole in our hearts, a hole that will never be filled. Our mother and father's house is a two-minute walk from the girls' grave. The first thing in the morning, last thing at night, they both walk and talk to them. It's all they have left. The pain they feel, as well as the rest of the family, of not being able to see them again is sometimes unbearable. To hear the children playing in the local school, knowing that Sarah should still be there, the pain is overwhelming. And you, Brian Hennessy, are the cause of this pain. We as a family all hope you will have a very long time to realise and be haunted by what you have done. This court will decide your fate, and it's our family's wish that you serve every day of your sentence, because God knows we will serve every day of ours. You will lose your liberty, a loss that does not even come close to the loss that your murderous actions have inflicted on this family. So what punishment did the judge see fit for the crimes committed by Brian Hennessy? What did he feel was an appropriate sentence for someone who took the lives of a young mother and her two daughters on Christmas morning 2008? Tune into the next episode of Inside the Crime to find out what he got and why it caused so much controversy. We'll also be taking a closer look at the sentencing regime in Ireland and asking, is it time we gave our judges more power 
when it comes to dealing with the most serious and heinous of crimes. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on newstalk.com forward slash podcasts or on the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, for episode four of Inside the Crime, out next Tuesday. Inside the Crime is hosted by me, Frank Graney, produced by Ashley Moore, with sound mixing by Lachlan Hart.